You're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE, with you on your beat for 40 years. I'm Sean Shinneman, and this week we're bringing you audio fresh from a record-breaking IRE conference. Some 1,800 people were in Philadelphia to talk investigative reporting last week, and hundreds of them packed into a panel room on Thursday to hear Seymour Hirsch talk with Len Downey Jr. Hirsch is an investigative reporter with a storied career dating back to his reporting on My Lai during the Vietnam War. Recently, his reporting on the killing of Osama bin Laden, a narrative that runs counter to the one widely circulated, has garnered a wide range of reactions. Some have been very positive, but others in the media have attacked Hirsch's use of anonymous sources. There's also been much discussion about where the piece ran, which was the London Review of Books. Hirsch addresses those topics in the audio you're about to hear. Len Downey, a former executive editor of the Washington Post, served as the moderator. As part of the conversation, you'll hear a bit about collaboration between The Post and The New York Times during Watergate, when Hirsch worked for The Times and another legendary investigative reporter, Bob Woodward, worked for The Post. And then, here at the beginning, there's some advice for young journalists. I don't want to overdo this, but you can't write if you don't read. And that's one of the great axioms. And the other one I speak often at journalism schools, I'm going, I'm going Saturday to give a speech to the annual convention of the um, Canadian um, uh, media. Uh, we'll talk about Harper. But anyway, um, but um, the other thing I always think about journalism is, is um, uh, just to be very blunt about it, get the f- out of the way of the story. No, ad- just tell the story. You don't have to say, you don't have, watch the adverbs and the adjectives. Just tell the story. If it's good enough, you've done your work, you can just do it with words. And it's not so easy. It's always, it's, it's I see it in newspapers a lot now. What I see too much, and we'll get to this in a second, yeah. I see too much great stories being written too early. They're writing tips. They don't really, I think, I don't think if there's a controversy between A and B, it's the media's job to say there's a controversy between A and B, even if it's one that hasn't been disclosed, it's to find out who's right and make a judgment. And that's hard work. And I don't see that being done enough, probably because you can't afford an invested time. Uh, money issues are so strong. But anyway. Yeah, I will want to talk about that. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You got your list. I'll I'll shut up. Yeah, let's, well, we'll go chronologically a little bit more. Uh, We don't want you You know, when I have lunch with Woodward. Yes. I sit down, just like you, yes. he has a list, and I say, Bob, we're going to gossip. Right. Throw away the list. Right. Bob's very organized. You are, too. Go ahead. He's <laughs> <laughs> got a list. And you're not organized, and it's worked well. Didn't you remember you. that little kid story about right. the list that yeah. I used to I read to my kids? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So how, briefly, because it's a rel- relatively familiar story, and you wrote something about it in The New Yorker not long ago, but briefly, how did you find the Mili Massacre story? <laughs> briefly? Because <laughs> yeah, we only have an hour for everything. Um, I had I had followed the the re, there were a number of religious groups putting out pamphlets about the war, picking up on the negative stuff that was coming out. Uh, uh, Amnesty International. I don't know if that's the right name because I don't think they were so prominent then. There was a series of, of religious groups, um, uh, Christian groups that had been writing pamphlets and books about the war, and so. I knew there was a dark side to the war because I also talked to people, you know, 06s colonels who would tell me how, 
how rugged it was. And I was seeing higher level guys. And we're talking about guys that really, once you, once you get to know them, really cared about what was going on, the, the, the priorities. Anyway, it was horrible. And so um, uh, when I got a tip from, um, he's now public, uh, uh, Je- Jeffrey Cowan. He later became head of the Voice of America and now uh, was uh, uh, ran the journalism department, I think, at, in somewhere in, um, in L.A., yes. one of the schools there. A very US, comp- USC, I think. USC, that's right. And he's now at, and does something else now at one of the foundations. But he's a great guy, obviously, since he gave me a tip. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he gave me a tip, and I was ready to believe it. That's all. I was ready to believe it. it, it it's interesting. You, you keep mentioning how so many of your sources, including at high levels, already had doubts about the war. Oh, my God. And, you and had to be half nuts not to be about well, 66, right, 67. Which is how so much of the media eventually was so critical about the war. And it's interesting that the military still doesn't remember that in retrospect. <laughs> uh, that, in fact, it was the military that figured out something was going wrong here and enabled reporters to report it, right? But, you know, I, I want to say this because it's, it's, there was a core of terrific reporters, uh, Homer Biggert, War Just of the Post, yeah. um, Gloria Emerson, my colleague at the New York Times, um, who, who were writing stuff about the war. Tony Lewis was always writing about the war. There was a sense I don't see as much. There was a, a willingness to make a judgment. Uh, we make some judgments now, but I, I, I like the fact that the, the, uh, the newspapers of 30 years ago, there were more people willing to make more judgments and be overtly one side or the other. Uh, maybe I'm just missing something. You know, old people, we always complain about anything that's new. So I, always, I know that's true. Well, I think in, in Ward's case, for example, and, and in Homer Bigger's case, too, and other people at the Times, I, I, don't, I don't think they were stating judgment so much as what you said earlier, which is by, by presenting the facts that will lead people to come to certain conclusions. And getting the facts into the paper, yes, it's not, right. that's always, you that's know, right. it's very hard. You know, when I first, when Ward, I was working for Gene McCarthy early, I, he was, I thought Bobby might run, and that, I've got no problem with that, because he, was, he didn't need me, but... McCarthy then was, Bobby went run, and I had a friend named Mary McGrory. She, she was just a wonderful dear friend. She was a columnist for the Washington Star and then the Post. Right. An amazing woman. Yeah. And um, she told me that um, Gene needs help, <laughs> uh, you know, and so I went to see him, and he talked to me for five minutes. He said, okay, you can do my speeches and handle press for the campaign. I mean, it was like that. It was very strange. But the, the, thing, the thing was um, that... I was talking about just with a few people just a minute ago. He said something very early when he was running as a complete outsider. He said the war, he was a Benedictine, he'd been in a seminary, took his religion very seriously, always thought he was a much better Catholic than the Kennedy boys. Uh, I wasn't allowed to say he went to Mass every day. Um, But he said in a speech, he was asked a question, he said, it's immoral. This war in Vietnam is immoral. And I keep on thinking we don't hear that language. Is what we did to Iraq moral or immoral, the way we left it? Do we, just, we just walked out because we got a status of forces agreement that ended, and we're done? That was it? They're on their own? And we wonder why there's problems and resentment towards America all over the Middle East? And when you think about how we're prosecuting the war today, we're, we haven't changed. We started with the war on terror in, in, after 9-11. We're doing exactly the same thing, kinetic, 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 drones killing, and we're losing. And there are people on the inside, wonderful people, who cannot get the changes. They cannot get the view that you have to do. There's another way to approach this kind of long-term um, um, uh, processes that are different than just simply killing. 
and we can't get we can't win that one. Are and those, me, we're losing are, the war. Are those some of your sources now, sure. and is that their motivation? Sure. Of course, the motivation right now from my sources is is total frustration at the inability to make changes and the inability to change a, a war that a process that is not working. The number of people, if you look at the number of people, Daesh or what you will, uh, or what we call Al-Qaeda, but Al-Qaeda disappeared. It's legally important to use the word Al-Qaeda because of the status of the agreement we signed in 02 that give the president the right to do whatever he wants if he claims it's an Al-Qaeda threat. But just the threat of fundamentalism. Uh, uh, it's, it's to the point where, you know, just to talk about the reality of today, one of the big tickets out of the mess we have now is Iran, and we can't for a lot of reasons even deal with that. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy to me. So there's a lot of craziness that goes on. And um, changing policy is very hard. And I do see, I do talk to people. Um, I don't want to get into Bin Laden stuff. You'll ask me questions. But uh, uh, I'm not bragging about it. They're just people. The thing you want is somebody who's inside, who's invaluable because of his, uh, his brains and his ability inside, who's also not afraid to be critical of the policy and not afraid of the consequences. And that's a rare thing to happen. And when you have that, you're in business. And that's what I have, and I'm sorry to say I have it. And a lot of other people don't, but tough luck. I've been around for 45 years, as you say. So uh, I have to ask you about the Bin Laden story. For those of you who haven't been paying attention, uh, oh, they know. Uh, <laughs> Cy wrote this piece for the, uh, well, you originally offered it to the New Yorker, did you? Can I ask you a question about this whole business fascination with who yes. I write for? Okay. Well, because you're unusual. You aren't. Do you I have to? Just write for I just want to know. Yeah. You're all such prudes. Do I have to marry every editor I've. I, that's what I want to know. I'm a freelance writer. I'm okay. a freelance you're writer. You're a freelancer. Okay. I, go, I go where well, I, I think I did, I did not know that. I did not know you did not have a formal relationship I never with had the New Yorker. A, I never had anything other okay. than a freelance relationship with the New Yorker. Okay. I didn't know that. All right. In other That's words, fine. Okay. No so letter. anyway, in the London Review of Books is this piece by Cy, before he says that word again, uh, which he will, uh, the, um, uh, uh, saying that pretty much the administration's narrative for the killing of Osama bin Laden was, it was a lie. Uh, and here's, a, here's another narrative that, that, that Cy spelled out. Um, how's that story holding up? Why does it cause so much commotion? We really want to go to that? Yes, please. Uh, I'll come back to other stuff, but, but this is a question that people came here to hear, listen to, the answer. I brought something, a couple of things. First of all, there has been no clear denial of it. Um, I'll just bring you a couple of things. And, uh, I, mm -hmm. I, I, don't ha I don't like defending what I write because time will do it. You know, I just let, let time take place. That's and a good other, point. I mean, it, it, it'll all come out. Yep. Um, but one of the things, there was a, one of the, the wonderful things, I'm always amused by um, the, the criticism about anonymous sources is fine and dandy, except I wrote for years, story after story, some of them that won prizes based totally on anonymous sources for the New York Times. And you know and I know if I come in with many of these stories, if I was at the Washington Post, you would have run them too. And we did. The Watergate was based mostly on anonymous sources. Yeah. So big deal. It's just a yeah. way out. Yeah. It's just a way out. So what happened in this case, and I'm not going to get into names, but one of the things that, well, I'll tell you a couple of things. I brought these things just because I was hoping it wouldn't come up. Mike Morrell, the <laughs> deputy. You're hoping it wasn't come up, but you're very well prepared for it. Um, <laughs> I find that admirable. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't want to send. I don't want to end up in a fight. But I, no, I right. give a couple of things. So one of the theses we have is that, of course, we didn't. You know, the Pakistanis knew nothing. We did this all, and we came in with two 
uh, stealth helicopters that don't exist. And one went down, and we flew out with a uh, Chinook, a two-engine, uh, 50-passenger plane to take them out. That flies, you know, much slower, much lower, much noisier. If you, some of you remember, 31 SEALs were killed in one of those planes about a couple years ago, and there was a great scandal. Why were 31 SEALs in, um, not in a better plane? Because they, they had some problem. They put them in on an operation with seven Pakistanis, and they were shot down easily because the plane's so vulnerable. But if you want to believe that uh, um, um, a Chinook can go out in and out without being detected by radar, you don't know anything about the radar mm -hmm. system. But if you wanted to do the work, you'd find out that we spent about $900 million on that radar system, which is a 3D uh, auditable system. Auditable means that in order for the planes to go in and out, the system had to be down. Um, and in order to, it's like getting the Pakistanis to turn down their system when they're always facing what they believe to be an immediate threat from the um, Indians. is a little bit like if we said, oh, every Christmas we're going to shut down NORAD for five hours so Santa Claus can come in, along with the Russians or anybody we want to. It's just not, anyway, you want to believe it, you want to believe it. So, so one of the guys that attacked me was uh, the deputy director, Morrell. Right. And one of the things he said was, he, uh, I'm reading, he said this publicly a bunch of times, but one of the things he said was, uh, he couldn't even read it, he said. He stopped reading it because it was so bad, so awful. And then he said, um, what he said was, he was asked, one of the questions he said is, he said, we made a decision very early not to tell the Pakistanis. Um, we would have, you know, we would have liked to make, we would have liked to make the raid a joint operation with the Pakistanis. What better way to strengthen the bilateral relationship? But we simply couldn't trust that someone in the Pakistani system would not tip off bin Laden. He said that three times. And nobody said, the next question was, oh, you mean you had reason to believe somebody in Pakistan knew where bin Laden was, right? I mean, how smart was he in doing that? How dumb was the press in not asking the follow-up question? And then you have a, a maybe 10 days later in a weekly talk show that uh, Diane Reem, you know Diane Reem, she mm -hmm. does this NPR. You got a couple good reporters talking about it. Neither one, one didn't know much about it, but they say, oh, well, this is, yeah, this is, you know, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, doesn't um, meet the Padlam test. But he said, there are people who have covered this story. He said, this is a New York Times guy. It doesn't matter who. Uh, he wasn't on the story. He's just repeating People who've covered the story extensively say it has the ring of truth. He went on, you know, not everything in the story is outlandish, you know, and there's, 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 a, there's something in, in this. And then there was a, a Washington Post reporter who covers national affairs who said, picking up on that, well, it's always hard to believe that nobody in Pakistan knew he was there. And so there may have been parts of the story that just ring through, true, which is fine. It's a perfectly rational response. So why not report it? Why don't you do it? What happens in our business it went from this is complete madness to we knew it, we had it. And I understand that because uh, nobody wants to chase anybody else's story, no matter how important. And that's just the reality. I, when I was uh, covering the AP, the Pentagon for the AP, if the LA Times got a great story, I would, you know, 11 o'clock, you get woken up, you know, you have, yep. you're covering it. Yep. And the first thing I do, Arthur Sylvester was this infamous double dealing, sort of funny, amusing swine who, who worked for McNamara. And I'd call him right away at home and say, I, I need the denial right now so I can go back to bed. Pentagon today denied a story. As much as I hated the war, my bitchiness and competitiveness won over. So you don't, it's almost impossible for a major reporter, for a major newspaper who might have the, the assets, the excess, to want to cover anybody else's story. That's all there is to it. But so, you did, yeah, that's a great transition. You did exactly that with the Watergate story. The Post had oh, been well. alone for months on end. Why did you go to work for the New York Times? Why did you want to uh, go after Watergate? You know, I will tell you something about that. I did, what happened is the story, 
Wilbert and Bernstein did this amazing stuff, and you have to really hand it to uh, Ben Bradley, mm-hmm. who was, as you know, was my dear friend. I like Ben. I used to play tennis with him every week. Ben was a man's man. <laughs> he often didn't read the paper, but he was a man's man. Yes. <laughs> you know that's true. I, I do I start talking about something in the paper. What? What was yep. it? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but he had an instinct. He had an a, a un- uncanny instinct and, um, uh, and uh, immense charm, too, obviously. Um, but um, the story, they did the stuff. It was big news. Nixon wins 71 to 29 over McGovern. There was no traction. And... Um, the story's dead, and I pick up on the, on the cover-up, and I write a big piece. New York Times had a hell of a time with the story. I wrote a seven, 8,000-word piece. It was a whole page. And um, 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 it's the, the set, gist of which is that the burglars were being paid to keep their mouths shut. Right, and the, the next morning, Bob Woodward called me up and said, thank you. Yes. He called up, and he said, thank you. We celebrated. We needed the New York Times on this story. Because we were all alone. The whole world was against us. If you think that people have been against you on this story, Oh, no, no, no. I know where you were <laughs> yeah, at. Yeah, the whole world was at. against us. And uh, then to have, to have the New York Times jump in was wonderful. Well, Schadenfrey, too, because everybody resented the fact that they had they'd done so much stuff, too. There, yeah. There's always that reality. So it was an amazing... And then it was a race. And then I, I worked against them. For, we, did, we were in tandem. And one of these days, Bob and I kept been talking, we ought to tell about it. We began... Uh, editors will hate to know this. We began sharing notes I in about that. April. Yes. I knew that. You knew that. I knew that, yeah. Well, it would be, you do this and I'll do yeah. that. Yeah. And there was a period of such warmth and collegiality between the New York Times. They had a good story. It, the, the Times would put it on page one, credit the post. The same with you guys. Yeah. We were really doing things together in right. a way that was remarkable. And we talked about, Bob and I about three years ago had dinner um, uh, about something else. And we started talking about... People should know it, but, you know, it's, nobody cares about Nobody cares what happened then. But it was an amazing period when the two major newspapers saw that there was something so wrong that they made, maybe it's just us, but my editors were there. Abe Rosenthal, and Abe Rosenthal's concern was beating Ben Bradley. That's why I had so right. much freedom. Eat your heart out, Abe, was frequently said in our newsroom by Ben Bradley. Ah, believe me. Yeah. He, he ate his heart out, believe me. <laughs> Thanks for listening. IRE members can listen to the entire conversation on our website. We'll have a link in the show notes. You also heard Bob Woodward mention a few times during that clip. We actually have a previous bonus episode featuring an interesting discussion between Woodward and Len Downey. You can find that and all of our past episodes on our website, ire.org slash podcast. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, shoot us an email. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast and can be reached at web at IRE.org. And you can reach me at Sean S., that's S-H-A-W-N-S, at IRE.org. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Sean Chinaman. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Cool. Okay. Podcast.